This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have a special guest. Her name is Professor Barbara Kahn, and she teaches retail and marketing at the Wharton School of Business. If you are at all intrigued by the impact of not only Amazon on the world of retail, but how overbuilt retail is and why it's inevitable that B and C class malls would would go out, why so many retailers are failing to keep up, failing to compete, why it's inevitable that we're going to see a lot of these retailers go down, and how all of these really interesting applications of data analytics and technology is completely changing how retailers operate. Uh, the experiential aspect of it, the ability to capture data in stores that previously only existed online is a very, very significant change. And the ramifications from that are going to be felt for quite a long while. With no further ado, here is my conversation with Professor Barbara Kahn. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Professor Barbara Kahn. She is a professor of marketing and a director of the J.H. Baker Retailing Center at Wharton, part of the University of Pennsylvania. Previously to that, she was dean at the University of Miami Business School. She is the author of The Shopping Revolution, How Successful Retailers Can Win Customers in an era of endless disruption, Barbara Kahn, welcome to Bloomberg. Well, thank you very much. It's fun to be here. Uh, it is, and and this is such a fun topic. I really enjoy uh, the subject, and let's just jump right into it. It's a chapter in your book. I have to start with how disruptive is Amazon? It seems like every announcement they make roils an entire sector of the stock market. Yeah, it's really amazing. Every day, something new from Amazon, and every day there's massive reaction. And a lot, you do see stocks move up and down as Amazon says something or other, threatens to go into health industry, into financial services. People are afraid. Um, and it's interesting because what I, Amazon does is a disruptor. There's no doubt about it. Um, and they disrupt one of the most famous Jeff Bezos quotes, which I have never seen actually written down, but everyone on the internet swears he said this, is, your margin is my opportunity. Yep. And that idea of taking out margin... In other words, taking out profit mm -hmm. is pretty scary. And when they can do it in a sustainable way, that's disruption. So let me broaden the conversation. Online retailing isn't even double digits yet. It's not 10%, of which Amazon is just under half. Are we getting a little all worked up for 5% of the market? Or is the overall trend what's scaring the bejesus out of everybody? You know, I don't think it's that online per se. I think it's changing the whole shopping experience. People mm -hmm. talk about it as omni-channel, but right now it's just retail. Retail is now become a seamless integration between online and offline. The The original online uh, retailers are opening up stores. Even Amazon is opening up stores, which is kind of mind-boggling that they're opening up bookstores. Right. You know, but Well, it's been so successful for Apple. Are some of the other technology companies trying to imitate that? Yeah, you see that also. Microsoft and, you know, I mean, Sony, which is electronic, they're opening up a direct store for them. But when they open up these new stores, they're different from old stores. They're mm -hmm. not the same thing at all. They're much more concentrated on customer experience. Mm -hmm. Some of the new stores that open up are showrooms. They don't even carry inventory per se. And that's part of the point. You really can't say what's the percentage of shopping online anymore because some people will shop online, pick up in the store. Then where do you, where do you code that, you know? What what is that? Is that online shopping or offline shopping? So I've experienced that with both Home Depot and Lowe's. You want something specific. They may not have this particular snowblower, but you can buy it online. They're shipping stuff to the store anyway. You pick it up there. 
There's no additional shipping cost, yet you feel like you're actually making it as friction-free right. as the usual online shopping. Is that what's meant by omni-channel? It's yeah. everything to everybody? Omni-channel is thinking about not dividing up, whether it's online or offline. It's all one big channel. And that's going to become a, a not a real word anymore. And we're just going to think of this as retail. You know, when you buy retail, you can go online, you can go in the store, you can pick up there, you can buy there, whatever. Pick, shop it on the phone. So I've noticed at stores like, uh, my wife calls this a retail therapy, but at stores like Macy's or Lord & Taylor, if you're looking at something and a salesperson, some of these stores still have sales uh, assistants, if you're looking for at something and they don't have it in the color, size, whatever you like, they're very quick to say, we can order it now and have it shipped to your home for free. Would you like to do that? And if it's something you're familiar with the size, it's like, yeah, sure, it's one less package I have right, to carry. Yeah. They don't want to let any transaction s slip away without converting it to an actual sale. It, it, has that been your experience? Oh, for sure that's the case. So if there's not all the traditional retailers are doing that now, I think. So this is a purposeful approach, not just one savvy salesperson. Yeah, you know, but I wonder when you tell that story, one of the things that's interesting to me about is whether that salesperson's on commission or not. Mm -hmm. Because, and that's what I think is interesting about, say, what I consider a very creative retailer like Sephora, mm -hmm. where the salespeople are not on commission. And the reason I bring up this point here is when you say, I'll send it to your store, or send it to your home. Is she really trying to, she or he, the sales associate, really trying to give something of value to you, which is the way you told the story? Or were they trying to upsell so they make a commission? And that's a subtle difference, but uh -huh. I think it's an important difference. Well, if you walk into a store and you find something you like, and I'm looking at three, let's say we're looking at shirts, and there are three different colors and extra small up to double XL, and I want this color and this size, and they don't have it, it's not so much an upsell as a lost right. opportunity. Right. In that and, case, and that's how I took it. Okay, in that case, it's positive. But but I want to make that point, because I think this idea of retail that retailers had in the past of doing whatever they can to make the next sale backfired when Amazon came in. Because I think what Amazon's trying to do is really make the customer experience easier. Mm -hmm. You know, and they make you, so you can get in and out of the website very quickly. What Amazon was famous for is they patented in 1997 one-click shopping. At the, and I, when I found out that that was patented, that was shocking to me. It's mm -hmm. like, why would that be patentable? Right. And then you had to go back to think, what was the way retailers thought in 1997? And what they used to think when you're online is keep people online as long as possible. They would talk about web strategies where you have a landing page, and if it's designed right, you go further and further into the website with the idea the longer people are on the website, the more they're likely to buy. Like it's a store. Right. And that's why I was saying with the salesperson, too. If, if it's a function of just trying to make sure you make a sale, like you said, anything I can do to make a sale, that's not what Amazon does. Amazon said, let's make it as easy as possible for you. And that was the first time people really tried to do that. And that's why they could patent one-click shopping. So going back to your example, the way you told the story, it was easier. It was better. But you could also imagine an alternative scenario where people are saying, I don't want you to walk out of the store without making a purchase. And they start doing a harder and harder sell. That's not really customer focused anymore. That's, you know, sales focused. Hmm, quite fascinating. Let's talk a little bit about retail and specifically, I have to discuss the con retailing success matrix. <laughs> Tell us about those four quadrants and what they mean. Yeah, well, I mean, I did name it that, but I, I think it's interesting to Well, name. what else are we going to right, call it? Right, that's, that's what, what I, they said name to, it something. I could think of nothing else. But anyway, the idea behind the success matrix is when, when I um, – I had I recently stepped down as director of the J H Baker Retailing Center. Mm -hmm. I had been there. I had been the director for the last six and a half, seven years. And during that time, I ran into a lot of changes in the retail industry. And being an academic, when I stepped down, I wanted to take a deep breath and try to organize it, everything into some kind of framework. And so I went back and looked at traditional retailing matrices, and they focused on the product mm -hmm. and they focused on operations or logistics. If you want, that was it. And that was it. 
And if you want to talk about someone as a great retailer, let's say Mickey Drexler, Mm -hmm. he was called the merchant prince. But that meant he knew how to merchandise. He knew how to assort product. He had a good eye. And nowhere in any of these traditional retail matrices was the customer. As a marketing professor, the first principle of marketing is the principle of customer value. And what does customer value mean in retailing? Give them a product they value from a retailer that they trust. That idea of retailer that they trust, that was missing. The second principle of marketing, which was not in any of these traditional retailing matrices, was the principle of competitive advantage. If you're in a very competitive market, you've got to be better than the competition. That means either increase pleasure or take away pain. So those two ideas form the underlying theory of the matrix. The columns are the principle of customer value, product benefits, or customer experience. The rows are the principle of differential advantage. Do it better by increasing pleasure or do it better by removing pain. And that gives me the two-by-two matrix that I call my So I, I broke it down in your book, which let me um, is called The Shopping Revolution, brands, experiential, frictionless, and low cost. Right. So each of those things either make it more fun or less painful right. or... What's the second or column? Or focus How does on that... making the product more fun uh-huh. or less painful, or focusing on making the customer experience more fun or less painful. And what's really new in the matrix is that second column of customer experience. And what Amazon redesigned, in my opinion, is making that customer experience frictionless, easy. That, that's interesting. How much of this is driven by this millennial generation and I, I guess I was going to ask a dumb question, which is how much of it is technology, but how do you really peel apart millennials and technology? Right. It's second nature to them. Right. So the let me rephrase that question. The combination of millennial preferences and the very astute use of technology is that what's driving a lot of this? Yeah, I think it is, actually, because when Amazon started in 1997, they started online. Mm-hmm. You know, and they started with books. And you have to think back, why did they start with books? And I would argue they started with books because the product and the shopping experience could be completely digitized. Mm-hmm. Once it can be completely digitized, then what they did is have an endless assortment. So they had more right. assortment than any physical store. And they reduced prices by 10 to 30%. That was a dominant solution that attracted customers. But you're right, it started with technology. But the basic idea of removing pain from a customer experience does not have to be technology. Because think of what Walmart's doing now, curbside pickup. They could have done that a long time ago and made shopping easier, but they didn't. They made you come into the store, walk up and down the aisles, stay in the store as much as possible, impulse shop. You know, all the ideas, put the milk in the back. All of that was to keep you in the store as long as possible. This new idea of you're a very busy person and you don't want to spend your whole time, whole day in a Walmart, so you should be able to pick it up as you drive home. That's a new idea, but that's not technology. Coincidentally, we're having this conversation the day after a New York Times column, front page New York Times column came out, discussing some of your work, amongst other things, how Amazon has affected retail and how retailers have finally began to learn from their experiences with Amazon. How far along in that process are we that retailers are finally waking up and saying, hey, we better do this and this or Amazon's going to eat our lunch. Yeah, I mean, I think they're seeing the retail apocalypse. People are talking about that. If you don't understand these two basic principles, the principle of customer value and the principle of differential advantage, you're not going to succeed. Radio Shack, Circuit City, Borders, you know, soon Sears and Kmart, who knows. But these retailers that are not really up to snuff on customer experience, they just can't make it in a world that has an Amazon in it. Sears, I think that has to be inevitable going that way. The local Sears near where I grew up has been there forever, and finally it's succumbed. And yet, how are shops like Best Buy and Target seemingly thriving? Target just announced their best quarter, I think, in something like uh, there was a 13% gain. What is the drivers of the successful companies like Best Buy, Target, and Home Depot and Lowe's, for that matter, 
versus the Sears and the Circuit Cities. Target's a very interesting example because it shows the importance of stores and this quote-unquote omni-channel experience. So one of the things they've done that's very successful is open up these small urban stores. Mm -hmm. So they used to have these big boxes in suburbia and rural markets, right? right? But now they have these small urban stores where singles or young people are living in the cities more. They Uh also open them close to campuses and they're getting a lot of people who like to have the physical store experience. They've been they've been tinkering with their product assortment. They've come up with a lot of new store brands. They're trying to get the cachet of Target back. Right. You know that design kind of idea of fun shopping and it seems to be working. They've been doing a lot of things. The biggest thing is changing that store, having a different assortment. It, it requires rethinking your assortment when the store gets smaller. And then these ideas of curbside pickup and making shopping easier and making shopping fun. So how do firms differentiate on brands? Well, you know, the luxury brands are still doing very well. So you're looking at Louis Vuitton, Hermes. Those those are really doing very well. They're staying off of Amazon, but they understand the importance of online also. They're partnering with things like Farfetch or Net-A-Porter, which are some kinds of online marketplaces that are dealing. But they, they understand if they're going to charge those premium prices, they've got to give superior product, pleasurable product, and a really good customer experience. You have to feel pampered when you buy luxury. So that's another piece of it. So what's the flip side, the everyday low prices, the EDLP? How important is that? Is that a totally different market segment, or is there any overlap? I Well, you know, that's interesting thing, because I think somebody might have a Louis Vuitton purse and then a Target t-shirt you know that that's possible but there's always going to be a price sensitive segment so everyday low price the walmart strategy costco strategy tj maxx they're all doing very well even though the the luxury brands are doing well too because they're going after being the best at something so luxury is the best at product and everyday low price is the lowest price and it seems that's a bit of a barbell the middle where the middle class used to shop that's become a bit of a void. It's either high end or low end. Right, yeah. It's yeah, something special and that's what I mean by differential advantage. You got to be better. You can't just be good enough. You got to be better at something. Let's talk a little bit about your academic career. What motivated you to write uh, a book on on the shopping revolution? Well, I mean, for the last seven years or six and a half years, I was the director of the Baker Retailing Center at Wharton. And the goal of that retailing center was actually to convince Wharton students to go into retailing. Typically, the Wharton students didn't go into retailing. They Mm -hmm. went into investment banking or hedge funds or consulting. But Jay Baker, who had retired as the president of Kohl's, thought this was a missed opportunity. And so he developed this center to encourage people to think about retailing. And I was the director of it. And so my goal was to really learn as much as I could about retail and what the excitement was to try to convince our students to go into the industry. At the time I was doing this, retailing was changing radically you know and we had all sort not only amazon but these digitally native vertical brands started those are the digitally native vertical brands are brands that start online and they mm-hmm. go direct to the end user warby parker was started sure. by four wharton students so that was particularly sense you know something we were very proud of but there's also casper that did it re- more recently the mattress company yeah the mattress company bonobos which was subsequently bought by walmart um Allbirds is a new one that's getting a lot of... Ah, you're wearing Allbirds. <laughs> <laughs> but these are digitally native vertical brands that are going out. And this... Be- made, this ha- We were trying to make retail sexy, but retail was becoming sexy. You know, it was real. The technology you referenced before really did change the way people think about retailing. So, so when a student graduates Wharton and goes into retail, what aspect of this are they doing there's it, it seems there's a universe of of things that make sense and are applicable in a modern technology world where where do you see them going into well, the Well you industry? know Amazon right now is a as big a hire of Wharton students as Goldman was. Really? So, you know, so... And we're not talking warehouse workers. These are high people. Uh, who knows what they're... I think they're working for AWS or whatever right. else. I don't know what they're working... But Amazon's a huge company. Giant. Though, right? Right. You know? Be, they'll eclipse Walmart as the biggest employer 
if things continue, if right, you extrapolate right. that Probably out to infinity, which is never a good but idea. But, you know, but even some of our students are going to Walmart now, which was, you know, was in the past, they weren't so intrigued with going to Arkansas, you know, and working in, like you said, an operationally efficient company. But now Walmart.com is in San Francisco. Jet.com uh-huh. is, is in That was a big purchase of theirs a couple of years yeah. ago. Yeah, so now it's a sexy, interesting, fun place to work. So do you recall there was, a, I want to say, a New York Times story, you, you just made me think of this, um, where someone came in to Target to complain <laughs> that their daughter was yes. getting pregnancy <laughs> stuff in the yes. mail. She's in high school. How dare you? And then subsequently he had to go back and apologize. Target's big data analytics figured out that if you buy this, this, and this, hey, you're probably pregnant and you're going to want this. Is that the sort of stuff that that MBA students are doing? Yeah, that's one thing. For sure, the Wharton School, our dean, is advocating over and over and over again, data analytics, data analytics. You really can't go into marketing anymore if you don't understand customer analytics and data analytics. You know, and that story, I remember when it came out maybe five years ago, was surprising. But, you know, you really didn't need data analytics to do that. A smart salesperson could have watched this girl come into the store, buy a pregnancy test, (laughs) then buy, you know, vitamins and prenatal vitamins or all these other things. It it really wasn't rocket science to figure that out. So given your vantage point, how has the curriculum for MBA students changed relative to to this industry? Yeah, we've definitely included more analytics in our marketing, in Mm -hmm. everything. Um, Adam Grant is another professor at the Wharton School. Sure. He started a people analytics kind of Originals, I think, was his Yeah, Mm -hmm. or or givers and takers and plan B and... um, he, but he's really, you know, all of that stuff. It's even management, which maybe you used to think of management and marketing as quote unquote softer sciences. We're all using data analytics. Of course, finance has always been data heavily data driven. You'd be surprised. That's a relatively recent phenomenon. By relatively recent, it's a couple of decades. It 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 was not as endemic as you would suppose. 20, 40, 60 years ago. That's interesting. Hmm. Quite fascinating stuff. Let's talk a little bit about some of the older brands who may not be quite as hip as um, the Warby Parkers or the Allbirds of the world. How would you advise companies like Kellogg's or Coca-Cola to appeal to the next generation? You know, it's really interesting to watch because I've been teaching marketing for a long time and we would teach branding and we would talk about what are the biggest brands forever the same biggest brands, Coke, IBM, whatever, Toyota. All of a sudden, in the last five years, we all know who the biggest Apple, brands are now. Amazon, right. Google, right. Netflix. I mean, and that's right. a change that happened very, very quickly in the last five years. And if you look at their stock prices, Kellogg's, Gillette, they're hurting. The CPG companies are hurting, and they do have to do something to wake up and smell the roses, just like the retailers. So Gillette, for example, has you know, started subscription services to compete with Dollar Shave Club and Harry's. Coca-Cola just bought a coffee company. Mm-hmm. And look what Nike's doing. That's pretty interesting. What so Nike let's, did. let's discuss that because I was just reaching for my phone to grab a data point that I wanted to ask you. You're here the day after it was announced that Colin Kaepernick is going to be uh, he received an extension of his contract with Nike, and on the 30-year anniversary of their launch of the Just Do It campaign, they made um, they made him part of that, and there seems to be quite an interesting backlash. However, and, and this is what's so fascinating, a data point I read, I, it might have been the Journal of the Times, specifically said something like two-thirds of Nike's customers are under 35 so they're you know nike is not marketing to old fat white conservative (laughs) dudes that's not their target demographic is it the people who are burning nike socks and shoes they really don't care about that, do they? No, I mean, I think that's the calculated decision they made, and they had to do some things because they also had been getting a lot of negative publicity on the women issue. I mean, they support Serena, and she's a fantastic role model. For sure. But that's not that's not where the news is about Nike and women, the, the lawsuits and all these other things, and that's been in the news, and Nike has to face that. Um, and I think you asked me late before about the difference in millennials and baby boomers. One of the things I see that's different is that millenni- millennials seem to hold brands accountable. And so it's not just enough to brand a product. You kind of have to take some positions. You have to be responsible. 
And I think Nike, you know, is, is taking that position now. They're standing up to social issues that do concern their core market, and they took a stand on it. Look what happened at Starbucks. You know, one incident in one Starbucks restaurant in Philadelphia caused an incredible reaction around the world. Uh, that was something I was talking to someone in Europe about, and I said, I don't suppose you heard about what happened in Philadelphia with Starbucks. And they, and they had. That, it, it was, you know, it's always amazing when you have such a diffuse company with tens of thousands of stores how hard that is to um, really get a consistent message and a consistent behavior across tens of thousands of employees. It's, uh, it's really quite astonishing. All right, so here's the Times article. It's not the journal. Nike returns to a familiar strategy with the Kaepernick ad campaign. The Times suggested that Nike, as a brand, has courted controversy. Charles Barkley, I'm not a role model. Tiger Woods saying, right. hey, some of these uh, golf courses wouldn't let me play uh, because I'm an African-American years ago. So coming back to Colin Kaepernick, is this just tacking into that controversy? Here's the data point I want to define. Nearly two-thirds of individuals who wear Nike in the United States are under 35 years old. So, so this wasn't a coincidence. This was a very conscious decision. Oh, they had to know that they'd get the, I mean, Trump made it clear they were going to get some backlash on this. Mm-hmm. And he, true to form, responded um, yesterday, although not as extremely as one might have thought. But he did respond. Um, and and the, then the boycott Nike kind of hashtag boycott Nike and the crazy videos that are coming up with people burning their expensive shoes. You know, Which is kind of silly because, <laughs> A, you already gave them your money. Yeah. And B, really shouldn't, if you really think it's a veterans issue, then donate it to a veterans group. By the way, yesterday, I'm doing this from my memory, so I'm going to get the numbers wrong, but it was something like Nike stock fell 2.7%, but Adidas stock fell 2.4%. It was almost no difference. If their biggest rival fell the same amount, it might have just been... uh, you know, the whole segment is is going to suffer a backlash for a couple of days and then back to back to usual. But when you take some of these positions, you're going to get polarization and they must have calculated, um, you know, we'll lose some, but we'll gain loyalty in other markets. And they thought it was worth it. So let's talk a little bit about the paradox of luxury. You you referenced it earlier. People have to either have some very positive uh, uh, affiliation with the product or the brand or the experience. What is the paradox of luxury? Well, you know, usually in economics, which I'm sure you know very well, supply and demand says you lower price, make things more accessible, then your market share is going to go up. Mm-hmm. In luxury, that's the paradox. If you lower brands too much, like Michael Kors, lower price too much, like Michael Kors and Coach did inadvertently mm-hmm. by having a lot of discounting and selling a lot of their products in out. Let's that diminishes the value of the brand. So if the and if you make it too accessible, it diminishes the value of a luxury brand. Luxury is for elite. Luxury is special. Uh-huh. Lu- luxury is inaccessible. So when you make it a little bit more affordable, uh, the notion of affordable luxury is almost an oxymoron. That's the paradox of luxury. It doesn't follow the regular rules of supply and demand. So so this goes back to the old days of General Motors when they would sell essentially the same car. The high end was a Cadillac, the middle was a, a Buick, and the cheap car was a Chevy. They were all essentially rebadged and, and up um, scaled versions of each other. Is that the concept? Yeah, you want- I mean, so maybe the guts of the car was similar, but the trappings or the right. were really different. And the dealerships were dealer. Right, and the also. service was different. The brand was different. The materials in the car might have been different, higher value. So there was. I'm not saying it was silly. I think there was value to what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the paradox of luxury, and part of what makes it special is not everybody has it. The, so it it's the the scarcity creates right. creates a specific uh, value that that's kind of uh, that's kind of interesting. So within the existing world of brands that are being disrupted, how can they jujitsu this? How can the 
disrupted become the disruptors. Well, that's interesting to think of. You know, you're seeing a lot of pressure on these digitally native vertical brands. They're, mm-hmm. they're considered some of the disruptors. A lot of what they have done by going direct without all these inter- intermediary channels, they've been able to lower the price. Mm-hmm. And so a Warby Parker is a very high designed glass, but it's sold, glasses, but it's sold at $95 rather than at $500. Oh, really? So that's part of what the disruption is. It goes back to that notion of your margin is my opportunity. Opportunity. Mm-hmm. So I'm giving you what you really want, but I'm charging you a lower price. So that's one way that they've been disrupting, and the other way the disruptings have been is making it more convenient. Um, I suppose there's something lurking out there that we haven't seen yet, but right now that's what people are doing. Um, can't imagine what what it will be, but maybe there's another dimension in my matrix I haven't thought about yet. So, so you you said you can't imagine what what they'll do next. How challenging is it to predict trends or even just extrapolate trends? It it seems that there's a new meme and a hot new flavor every other day. Are are these things just passing fancies or is there really a bigger shift taking place in a lack of consistency in brands over time. I mean, what I think what you're talking about is the way retail changed over time and got people to buy more, which was change styles, t- change trends. So in the old days, hems went up and down or colors went that was went a long out. arc, wasn't it? That was what? A long arc of time. It didn't change seemingly from day to day. Yeah. It would change season to season. Season to season, but it gave you a reason to buy more. Same thing with electronics or innovations or cars. The technology just got better and better, and sure. so you needed... So that, you do need to see something new in order to get people to buy, because products just don't wear out that fast. Mm-hmm. You know, If they wore out, that, then you'd have to replace, but a lot of things don't, so you need fashion, style, new technology. What Amazon did and the digitally native vertical brands did was, I do think, significant disruption, which is different than this changing in styles and trends. And they realized that the whole model of retail had gotten stale. Um, and that's when I went back to that Salesforce commission kind of idea. The idea that if you would go into a department store and try to run away from the perfume women, you know, that were going to spray right. you. Like, right. what were they thinking? You know? They were thinking that they, these are commission people who are going to do anything to, to sell something. So let's talk about that. We, we've been, other folks have been discussing the death of the mall for years and years and years. Is that overblown or has that sort of post-war suburban shopping experience, is that also circling the drain? Yeah, no, I think that that's what's happened. Like, it got stale. So we have way too many stores in the U.S. We're over, it's called overstored. Yeah, overbuilt. Uh, By like a substantial amount versus Japan and the U.K., I remember. Yeah, right, substantial. So even if you didn't see all this change, those stores were going to have to go out of business. We had too many. And if you look at the malls that are going out of business, they're called the B and C malls. Right. They were terrible malls. You know, when the Macy closed down as as the destination, those all those stores in the middle had to go out. There was right. no traffic. Right. So that's what's going down. But just as those store malls are going down, some exciting, beautiful, new flagship malls are being built. Look what's happening in New York City. There's some beautiful stores being built that should attract a lot of traffic. Can you stick around a little bit? I have a ton more questions for okay. you. Okay. We have been speaking to Professor Barbara Kahn. She teaches marketing at Wharton. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and come back for the podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things retail. You can find that at iTunes, Overcast, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Bloomberg or wherever finer podcasts are sold. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Check out my daily column on bloomberg.com. You could follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Barbara, thank you so much for doing this. I find this subject absolutely fascinating, and I have a bunch of, of questions to that we didn't get to. Um, but I have to come back to the luxury as a scarce good. Um, and I'll share a quick funny story with you. My wife teaches fashion illustration and design. Oh. So when I get dragged around to various stores, it's not so much retail therapy as it is research. 
And and where I am the reckless, oh, that's nice. Get one of those. <laughs> um, she is the much more fiscally prudent of the two of us. And one day we're, I forgot where we were, but she sees this Prada bag and it's ungodly expensive. It's this leather fringe bag. I want to say it was like twelve or fourteen thousand oh, dollars. Some wow. insane, wow. insane number <laughs> that I gasped. I'm like, you know, you could buy a small car <laughs> for the cost of that that bag. Yeah. And um, and speaking of cars, I troll around eBay all the time looking at old cars to occasionally um, tickle my fancy. And on a lark, I started searching for that bag. And one day, there it is. It's less than a thousand dollars. It's which to me is still a ridiculous price for bags. But you walk into the store and three hundred, four hundred, six hundred, eight hundred is pretty typical. So for her birthday, I surprised her with an eBay purchased Prada ungodly expensive bag. What does the used market do to luxury? And what do things like you mentioned Netta Porta and, and some of the, is it Preta Porta? What is Netta Porta and uh, uh, Farfetch. Okay. Yeah. So they sell, rent, repurpose? Well, they do both. Some of them are marketplaces. Some of them have their own inventory. Some of them concatenate a lot of little stores uh-huh. on their platform. There are different models there. But luxury is a really interesting business there's catches on it one of them is this whole counterfeit market oh for sure so, that, that was the concern with ebay yeah i actually had to write the person and say listen i'm interested in this bag how do i know it's real and they sent me a thing back here i've sold ten thousand items i've been on ebay for tw- whatever a decade i have all the paperwork with this oh. and and to her, my wife's eye i when i gave it to her i said make sure this is real and she looked at it and she goes, if this is fake, it's a fantastic thing. <laughs> well, all right. Was she happy with it? Thr- thrilled to death, can I tell you? She at, we, The reason I even remembered this is she just said to me, well, fall's coming up and I'm excited about that. And I'm like, why? Jeans? Sweater? She's like, no, I get to take the Prada bag out of the closet. It's, it's, it's a leather fringe bag, so it's her fall bag. Oh, she's, very, she's very excited about it. But that's a real big problem. Like, in, It's a big problem, particularly in China, where a lot of these things are manufactured. And some of the luxury products would be the branded products would be done during the day and after hours on the same manufacturing some of the counterfeits would be done so what is the difference between the counterfeits so in that case the counterfeit and the real product was actually the product was the same the brand it just wasn't was authorized it was it didn't have the paperwork the certificates and things so like they that. were bringing in they were using the same materials in the some same. now those counterfeits are expensive there's different levels of counterfeits also you want a good counterfeit yeah, you don't right. want a cheap counterfeit. If, if you saw, the very best counterfeits are actually quite good um, but you have to know what you're doing you have to have the eye to see the difference some of the counterfeits are terrible but that's a real there's been pressure now on Alibaba on and on Amazon because they hadn't been policing whether right. this uh, resellers and third-party sellers were selling real products or counterfeits or all of that and so luxury products never wanted to go on those platforms sure. unless they could be assured that there were no counterfeits so if you if you go down to Chinatown, you could buy a um, yeah. a nice Rolex watch for about fifty bucks. The problem yeah. is it's Rolex with two L's. Yeah, other right, exactly. other than that, it it's hard to tell the difference. That well, some of the fakes are pretty spectacular. Yeah, I mean in Rolex, I doubt it's real gold if it's for that. sure. Um, so so that's the issue with with um, luxury. I, I it's really fascinating. I know in China they've had fake Apple stores and all sorts of stuff. Uh, what was a has there been a resolution with eBay or Amazon or is this still an ongoing well, it issue? It is ongoing, but I think that they uh, Amazon has now acknowledged that they're going to have to control their counterfeit issue, or they're not going to get the luxury brands to come on. Mm-hmm. Lu- you know, we're talking about luxury. It was interesting this notion that accessibility makes luxury less desirable because, as right. you said, scarcity or exclusivity is what luxury is, and yet people still want to buy online. Now, online makes it more accessible. Sure. So that's another paradox. Luxury had to figure out how can I have the luxury experience and still have the convenience of online. And they've been doing all sorts of uh, experimenting with how to keep the convenience of online but keep the exclusivity of luxury. So, for example, they'll have specialized buyers or personalized buyers Mm -hmm. where you can talk to them online and do the business online, but it's still a one-to-one luxury experience. Like a personal shopper. A personal shopper or something Mm -hmm. like that. And so they've been trying to do things 
things. And then when they ship you the product, the packaging is beautiful. You know, some of the luxury mm-hmm. comes in the packaging that goes around the product. Have you been reading about these unboxing videos on YouTube? <laughs> no. So I just saw this this weekend. Apparently, there's a little bit of a dopamine hit if you watch a video of someone un- unwrapping... Uh, a delivery, whether it's an Amazon box or something else, they unwrap it, they unpack it, and it's like, all right, now I don't have to shop. I've gone through that experience. Oh, that's funny. I don't know how much I really <laughs> buy into that, um, but it's fascinating. But what what I do recall reading about um, earlier, uh, to your point about the experience, if you go into Tiffany's and for whatever reason they think you're a high roller type shopper, you get brought up into oh, the yeah. special secret private room yeah. that the public doesn't get to see. Yeah. And it's apparently a very different and much more expensive oh, experience. Of course. Tiffany's is an interesting example. They're coming back up. Tiffany, some people say, is the only true American luxury brand. It started in, I think, 1857 or something. The same year Hermes started. Mm-hmm. So it's been around for long enough. Luxury really has to have history. It has to have legacy to be a real luxury brand. And Tiffany's really the only American brand that can claim that credit. But they kind of lost their way maybe 30 years ago when they had too much silver in their store uh-huh. and they had all these young adolescent teenage girls coming into the store right next to these very rich people buying diamonds in private rooms and that was not a good juxtaposition yeah that's so they, what should have been online the silver yeah right so now they have they still sell some silver but it's a very small p- part of it and they've really tried to re-up the luxury vision of tiffany's make it you know what audrey hepburn saw in it nothing can go bad in a mm-hmm. tiffany store you know so uh, that's an interesting point that Tiffany's might be the only luxury store. I'm thinking of things like Ralph Lauren, but they make everything from the low end to the purple label, which is crazy expensive. Um, And whatever you can find in Neiman Marcus, but I assume... Half that stuff is coming from Europe. Europe. Anyway. So the traditional luxury brands are French and Italian. You know, mm-hmm. that's where you made in Italy. You know, Gucci's sure. off the charts right now. Gucci's crazy, doing crazy well. Uh-huh. Louis Vuitton, Hermes, those are French brands. You know, some of those. Um, but um, Ralph Lauren had this what I call a branded house strategy, which mm-hmm. is what you described. It, under the same brand name, from Purple Label or Collection all the way down to Outlet, you mm-hmm. could tell it was all Ralph or Polo. Whereas the luxury houses in Europe are house of brands, and each house is a special brand. They don't have one brand name over all of their different offerings. So when you look at Coach, which I recall back in the day at one point, Coach was pretty high-end. Right. I don't know if that's the case. Uh, We were talking about Professor Scott Galloway at NYU Stern. He's made the claim that Apple is the first technology luxury brand. I agree with them. You do. It's kind of, when you look at their prices, they're certainly premium prices. And they're counterfeited also, just the way luxury is. It's almost a a badge of honor to be counterfeited, you know? Yeah, nobody is counterfeiting Android, (laughs) Samsung phones. So, so, uh, But, you know, Coach that you mentioned, that was an American brand, but they're now starting to copy the European strategy. So they changed their name to the holding company, Tapestry, and mm -hmm. now they have a house of brands. So they have Coach, they have uh, Stuart Weitzman, they have Kate Spade, all uh, under the house Tapestry. Uh And so they're moving and they're trying to take back the too much outlet selling and trying to resurrect the grandeur that Coach used to have. And they're doing well. Their stock prices went up. Their, mm-hmm. their sales are going up. They're doing very well with that strategy. My wife taught me a um, shocking data point way back when. The stuff you see in the outlet centers, that's not the same stuff yeah. that you can get in the stores. <laughs> Although occasionally there are... Um, leftovers and end runs and they do get dumped there but a lot of stores specifically manufacture for the outlet right which but that was what coach did wrong mm -hmm. see what your wife said is the right strategy you want it you have to keep it separate because why would anybody pay full price if you get the same product in an outlet but coach had some of the same product in their outlets and what that did was under undermine the value of the brand if you're paying a high price and someone else got the same product the exact same product at an outlet price why would you want to pay the higher price? And, and and Coach was hurt by that. So let me push back on that. I, I notice, all right, I'm wearing, Brooks Brothers is probably the wrong example. This is a Brooks Brothers shirt. But I notice that a lot of products, the same exact products, are sold 
at multiple times at different prices. So I could walk into a Lord & Taylor. So we're recording this in September. All the new fall stuff has already been out for a month. If I went shopping last month for fall stuff, it's full price. It's not discounted. It's not coupons. It's not on sale. And then by the time, I don't know, November rolls around, the coupons start. And then as we get closer to Christmas, the big discounts start. And then by the time we hit January, the same product, you could pay, buy a shirt for $120, $85, $60. Now, you may not get the right color. You may not get the right size. You may not get exactly what you want. But if you're price sensitive, there seems to be a range you can buy the same product across six months all these crazy different price points. When is that, that is that a purposeful strategy? Yeah, when that started, it made sense, you know, because you would target people at different willingness to pay. And so you get the people who are willing to pay at the beginning of the season to pay high. People who couldn't afford it or didn't want to would wait till the end of the season and pay low. Unfortunately, people got addicted to those price promotions. Right. They could predict those price sure. promotions. And consequently, they were very reluctant to pay full price. And it got really bad around holiday seasons where it's big, you know, that's the big bonanza for sure. Retail where it said if you waited long enough, you know, you're going to get the discount or Black Friday and all these other things. People got addicted to the discounts, and that was very bad. It undermined the value of the brand. It, it is what hurt Michael Kors for a while. Michael Kors uh -huh. has pulled back on that, so they can be seen as more luxury now. Um, and part of the reason for it was the price sensitivity or price discrimination. Another reason was if they didn't forecast demand correctly. And it's mm -hmm. hard to forecast demand for a fashion product because you don't know what the consumers are going to like or not like. So you over-order certain things, and then you've got extra inventory that you've got a discount at the end of the season. And, and you're doing that years in advance. It's not like they're making... 18 months in advance, typically. Crazy. So, so how are you going to... Now that's changed. And this is another thing. This is not just Amazon has done that. Zara has changed this a lot. Zara has changed. They do like a, not, a lot of turnovers in the store. They don't have this 18-month lead time or anything like right. that. And there's all this pressure. The part of the disruption is to give customers a better experience. So they have to be better at forecasting demand. They have to get the right product in the store so they don't have leftover inventory at the mm -hmm. end because what the process you described you could see you know long term it's not going to work right. people understand it they, you know everybody knows that happens why wouldn't they wait for the discount price especially given uh, i would make an argument that there hasn't been a whole lot of wage growth and the real wage growth after inflation for the middle class over the past 20 or 30 years that has to have an impact on the selling strategies of retailers yeah and so I agree, but that's what you're seeing. Like with all with Macy's and stuff, when you talk about what their, their new strategy they're announcing, one of them is much more meticulous forecasting of product assortment, having a better idea before you put you know excess inventory in the store. And is that just big data? I mean, I, I would imagine that if they they don't just get to turn a dial and say, okay, now we're better forecasters, couldn't they have been a better forecaster five or ten years ago? Computer technology has improved, but not so much over a decade that – is it the algorithms? Is it just the, the It's also the – Changing the system so you can see what sells and reproducing faster. You know, so that's, business intelligence? Yeah, that, well, that's the data, but also the operations. Like, don't order things. See what's selling and then order it um, rather than – and the other thing that Zara did, they also were customer-focused, where the design luxury houses are product-focused. So the luxury houses say, I'm the designer. This right. is what you like. What <laughs> Zara says is, I'm going to look and see what the customers like, right. and then I'm going to put what the fashionistas like in my store. So they have their sales associates at the end of every single day report back to headquarters what they've observed their customers are coming in wearing, really? what they've observed their customers asked for, and they use that customer data in addition to what the fashion houses are doing to try to better predict what customers are going to like or what they're not going to like. How unique is that, what, what Zara is doing? Well, Zara was one of the first ones to do it, and then they do a very good job, and they're doing very, very well. But again, this gets back to like this shouldn't have been rocket science that you should <laughs> that you should ask the customers what they actually like before you just load up on inventory in your store right you know but that just didn't happen until recently what what about uh, and I know I'm gonna mangle this term what about the knockoffs and the fast fashion 
How significant is that to, to well, stores I mean, like Zara that? Well, I mean, Zara sometimes calls called fast fashion, but it's a higher, a little bit higher price point fast fashion. But that is the idea. Instead of, like you said, waiting the 18 months for mm-hmm. luxury to come in, let's get, people now want to buy in season. That's a very big difference. In season. Yeah. So like if it's fall, I want to buy fall now. Right. Where they, the luxury houses were treating, uh, teaching you to buy fall, you know, before it was fall. Right. Who wants to go shopping in July and August for a winter coat? It makes no sense Again, at all. Again, you see what I mean? It's like that should have been obvious to people. But they looked at it from the product and operation side. I mean, obviously, there was a logic to doing it. Getting, you have to manufacture it, you have to get the supply, you have to do all these things. It took a long time to get the product to the store. But guess what? Zara figured out how to do it in a way that took a lot less time. I will admit to once. So I, I had this Dessant ski coat for years, and I made the mistake of buying a light-colored coat, which is a terrible idea in New York City. It just gets <laughs> filthy. And I tried on this black and sort of neon yellow one, and Dessant is an exorbitant French luxury brand or wherever it comes from. And I couldn't pull the trigger on it. It was too expensive. That September, I just happened to stop into a ski shop that had a giant preseason sale, and literally found the same exact coat for 30, not 30% off, for a third of what I would have paid last year. Yeah. And I, I couldn't couldn't resist that. <laughs> but that said, really, how, how did we ever get trained to buy winter clothes in August? That doesn't make any sense. No, and that now they have customers pushing back. That's, again, what the millennials are doing. One of our young designers, Rebecca Minkoff, which is, she's considered a millennial designer, she was one of the ones on that New York Fashion Week saying, you know, I'm going to start showing during Fashion Week what people want to buy now. Um, and that was considered revolutionary. Right. It, it, makes, <laughs> it makes so much sense. What else is... You have a bird's eye view of what's going on in in retail and fashion and and related areas. What do you think is really interesting? What is something that you're kind of intrigued about these days? Well, one of the things I think is interesting is how important in-store tech is. I was thinking tech. about, yeah, you know, like the beacons in there or the smart boards and the magic mirrors. I What's a magic mirror? I, mentioning Rebecca Minkoff, she does that in her own stores. If you go to the Soho store, you'll see it, which is where all the items in the store are coded with RFID codes. Uh-huh. And when you walk into the dressing room, on the mirror in front of you, they show the items you're bringing into the, into the dressing room. Room. It's right there on the mirror. And then if you want a different size, you can push on the mirror and a, the sales will bring show you up a different with... size. They'll also give you suggestions. If you bring in a you know a pencil black skirt, they'll say this blouse will go with it, this purse will go with it. All of that That makes perfect there. sense. How has no one ever thought of that before? Now, the thing about that that's interesting is it makes perfect sense and apparently has increased sales. You know, it's got to be expensive. Upsell. It is expensive, but apparently the upsell upsell has worked very well on that but more importantly is collecting the data online if you go online and you put something into your cart and you don't buy it you know you get all these ads for the next two months right Right. because they figure if you went all the way through what's called the purchase funnel to put something in your cart, you must have really liked it and maybe we can get the price tweaked right or maybe Mm -hmm. and we'll get you to buy so they'd spend a lot of time on that last mild, so to speak, of the cart. Well, in the physical store, if you went to the trouble of bringing something into the dressing room, you must have liked it. Right. And then if you didn't buy it, why did you not buy it? What was wrong with those items? That data was never collected in a physical store. Now that we're taking this into the dressing room, I can see what you bring into the dressing room mm-hmm. and what you purchase or what you don't purchase. And that's very useful information. So now you're capturing all the data that you previously were at a disadvantage versus online retailers. Right. Now you can do that in the store. And what are they actually using that data for? Well, is it productive for them? Yeah, you can figure out, like, why is this item not selling? Maybe it's not sized right. Maybe it's too much money for this. You know, you can figure out reasons why people are choosing not to sell. I mean, so one of the things, if things aren't making it into the dressing room, maybe they don't look good on the rack, maybe they're in the wrong place in the store, all of a sudden you can fine-tune your merchandise huh. To, to be what customers want. You're getting customer input right there at the store, which they didn't used to get. That That's quite fascinating. So I know I only have you for a finite amount of time. Let's jump to um, my favorite questions that I ask all of my guests. Tell us the most important thing that your students don't know about you. 
Well, I don't know if my students, but one of the things that's happened recently to me is that I can't drive over bridges anymore. I'm really <laughs> Why not? Sca- I'm scared of driving over bridges. Because what happened in, in Italy or just... It, just, it seems crazy to me to drive over a bridge. I don't right. know. I can walk over bridges, but I don't like to drive over bridges. And as a result, it's limited how much I drive now. Really? Now, that's not... Tu- a- you're okay with tunnels? I'm okay with tunnels. The crushing weight of don't hundreds of me, tons of rock over you. I will tell you that as a kid, driving over the Williamsburg Bridge in the outer roadway where it was just this sort of metal um, framework, like a mesh framework where you can look down through the road at the water and it made this horrible humming sound on the tires. <laughs> I was never thrilled with that particular bridge. It's funny. I can be a passenger in a car driving over a bridge. I just don't want to drive it myself. I don't trust myself, even though I don't know what I could just do. Gonna... I'm afraid I'd freak out. But, you know, if you have <laughs> to have that fear now, I didn't have it when I was younger. I have it now. If you have to have it now, in the land of Uber and driverless right, cars, goodness. you know, so I'm how easy. Right. I'm okay. It's not as bad as it could be. Who um who were your early mentors? Who guided your career in academia, and who led you into the world of marketing and retail? Well, you know, um, if you're a doctoral student and you get a PhD, which I did, a lot of times your your dissertation advisor is a big mentor. And my mm-hmm. dissertation, I got my PhD at Columbia, and my dissertation advisor was Don Morrison, who just recently retired. Um, and he was he called himself a full service advisor. He advised right. everything in my academic life and my personal life. So he made a really big difference. More recently, I I um, left Wharton for a few years to go down to University of Miami to be the dean of the business school there. And when I was there, Donna Shalala was the president of University of Miami. Um, Clinton administration. Yeah, she was the secretary of health and human services under Clinton for the longest serving health and human services. And then she was also had a big career in academia. She was president of Hunter College, and she was president of University of Miami. More recently, she headed the Clinton Foundation when Hillary was running, um, which was kind of an interesting place to be. I would imagine. And now she went back to Miami and she just won the uh, Democratic seat for a Congress, for a, you know, House of Yeah. So she. That was very recently. Very recently, she won the Democratic primary for that seat, uh, which I think was held by a Republican, but so hopefully she can still win it. And she's 77. And I got to say, she's an amazing role model. She really taught me what it was like to be a leader, taught me, you know, how to face adversary, adversity, you know, to figure out what you should do. She taught me the importance of low-hanging fruit, visible mm-hmm. signs, and long-term strategy. She was really amazing. Huh. I had no idea she had she was running or had won that. And just last night, I think it was Massachusetts, um, there was a woman challenger to the sit- sitting Democrat uh in the House, and she uh, beat him, and there's no Republican running against them. This year very much looks like the year of the woman yeah, in it's politics. It's a giant, giant shift. It, it, it's quite fascinating. Donna Shalali, wow, that's really interesting. Um, so tell us about the retailers who influence the way you look at the world of, of retail. Well, you know, that was one of the things I tried to do in my book also, to look at who's winning and who. And that's what I focused on. Who's losing? I wasn't as interested in. And so the retailers, I think, are doing a great job. Of course, Amazon. I'm really impressed with Walmart. Costco is a very interesting retailer. They've been enormous. Them and BJ's have both been enormously successful. They've been doing really well. And there's a data point I saw that said 60% of Costco members are Amazon Prime, which means they're holding two memberships. Mm -hmm. Um, And that means, and Amazon sells the same things Costco sells. So Costco's doing something Mm -hmm. right. You get the giant volume. If you have like five kids and you want those giant, like I personally don't need two gallons of salsa, but if you walk into a Costco and you want those giant packages, I love the idea yeah, of shopping less. Yeah, small businesses like it, but it's also, mm-hmm. the phys- you know, they sell gas, so you have to drive there anyway. Right. They have the in-store sampling. There's a bit of a treasure hunt feeling in yeah. Costco. So the point is that there's something they're doing right in the physical store to make people to have two memberships. That's I'm really impressed with them. I visited Costco in Seattle, and I just love that. I love their philosophy. Mm-hmm. I love the way they think. You mentioned Mickey Drexler and the Gap previously. Um, 
any other retailers, Starbucks, anybody else come to mind as as doing anything innovative? Well, obviously, Starbucks invented customer experience. You know, mm-hmm. they the third place and all of that stuff. I can't tell you how many Harvard cases are written about Starbucks. Really? You know, yeah. So that whole idea when they described experience is different than way than the way Amazon um, described it, but they understood that also. So that I also like TJ Maxx in Burlington. Mm-hmm. You the notion of the treasure hunt in those stores um, and how they keep the prices way down and still understand scarcity and exclusivity. You know, that's kind of interesting. You don't want to go into a store and see 20 different of these dresses on a special price. You want to find one that's just for you. You know, that's an interesting idea. So let's talk about books. This is everybody's favorite question. Tell us about some of your favorite books, be they fiction, nonfiction, Retail related or not? You know, I was an English lit major, so I mm-hmm. read lots of fiction for a really long time. And my best, my favorite books would be the classics or some of the best selling fiction. But most recently, I have been reading more nonfiction. Mm-hmm. So I really like, um, you know, Malcolm Gladwell, Michael Lewis. I also like to read female c- comedians. So I like Sarah Silverman and I like Tina Facebook. I like their I take read on. both of those books yeah, they're, and they're both very amusing. Yeah, they're very amusing and I like their take. You know? So the Sarah Silverman's book was The Bedwetter's Bedwetter, Dilemma yeah. or something like yeah. that. And um, Bossy Teen- Pants, yeah, is yeah, that right? Yeah. They, they were both um, absolutely... Uh, I mean, any other female comedian books you would recommend? Because those are the only two I have. Those to Those are the read. two ones I read. <laughs> I don't. I have to read so much academic stuff that I, it's sometimes hard to read books. So, but. what what has you excited about retail today? What are you really jazzed about? Well, one of the things I'm starting to do, I'm thinking of developing, working with a partner, to develop a new course on visual marketing. And visual the, marketing. So, what we can learn by eye tracking and what people are attracted to. What on people, a website or in a physical it, store? Both. You can can wear goggles and see what people look at at the store. Huh. You can see what they look at online. We start to see what it's the automatic reaction to visual. You know, you said your wife was a designer. It's kind of interesting to see what people are struck by, how they scan a product. Right. So this new neural marketing idea, the idea of new ways to collect data, new ways to get in people's heads or to see what they automatically and can't tell you they appreciate. When you start to care about what customers want in retail, these different ways of measuring it is pretty exciting. Huh. That that that's quite interesting. Um what do you think is the most significant change we're going to see in retail over the next couple of years? I think we're going to continue to see retailers that just don't cut it go out of business and I think that's okay, you know. And I think Amazon's going to keep pushing. They're going to they're going to go into other businesses. They I I'm really interested to see what happens. They're talking about the retailization of healthcare. Mm-hmm. Talk about a situation that is so not customer focused. Right. Is healthcare. I mean, you can't get worse service than in a health, you know, in well, a health cable is, is probably <laughs> yeah. your closest yeah, bet. Right. So I think you're going to see changes in all of that and the idea that this retail model has legs that it should apply to lots of different ways of thinking. I think that uh, we're going to see big changes there. You know, as a, I mentioned earlier, I, I am a car guy. The car shopping experience is horrific. Any chance we're ever going to see that improve? Tesla seems to be making some headway yeah, in that. Yeah, he's an interesting guy. I'm For, Wharton grad. <laughs> oh, is he? I didn't yeah, realize that. Yeah. To, to say the least, he's an interesting guy. Uh, of all the retail experiences there is, there is none more entrenched oh. in the past than going out and trying to shop for a car. Oh my God, I can't stand it. I just so yeah. why has nobody disrupted that yet? Well, some people have tried to do it. I guess some people like the game of that. I don't very know. Very few. Yeah, very. You know, it's it should be disrupted. Then that that's what you're looking for. Things that are not pleasant that people don't want to do. Somebody's going to come in and do it right. You 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 Wharton students get busy on that. Um, so tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. Well, uh, you know, there's a couple times they're difficult to talk about. So, uh, but what characterized the times and several points during my life that I failed where something came as a surprise to me, that's what I would say. It's, it's a function of my not being a very good self-monitor. And what I mean by that is I, I think I have a lot of empathy and I can see what's going on. And I look around, I see a lot, I, I can feel people's emotional reactions and mm-hmm. things. But what I am not good at is 
understanding how I come off to other people. So that's called self-monitoring. I don't anticipate it, maybe if I get angry, how people will, what people will feel about that, or uh, if I'm, you know, short temp, you know, or say something very in a quick way. I don't appreciate that, and that's gotten me into trouble to not like understand. It's not just what I see, but it's how people see me. Mm-hmm. That that. That's intriguing. Uh, I will plead guilty to that as well. Um, <laughs> what do you do for fun when you're not in the classroom? What What do you do to to kick back and relax? You know, the more at the older I get, it's interesting for this. The more important I find running, working out, being outdoors, walking. Mm-hmm. I could spend when I was younger long times at a desk. Now, if I do that, I go crazy. Right. I just can't stand it. I've, that's why I'm glad I teach because you walk around a classroom. But I really like the outdoors. I like running. I like working out. I, I, so really... you have a Fitbit and an Apple Watch <laughs> yes, on I the do. same hand. At least yes. I have things on two different <laughs> yeah, hands. Right. Why both? I like I like when I'm working out to monitor, you know, self quantify. So they measure different things. Uh-huh. So I have social networks that are connected in different ways. Really? I compete on all of this stuff. I love it. I love to see how my heart rate was today, how well I slept, all of that stuff. My <laughs> wife wears it when she sleeps. I hate having something on my wrist while I'm I'm sleeping. It's a distraction. Um, so is it an accurate? monitor of your sleep habits oh apparently you know i guess i take it it works for me so you work with millennials and young people if someone were to come to you and say they were interested in exploring career in marketing or digital brands or retail what sort of advice would you give them well, one of the things, you know, when I was the dean of uh, Miami, I talked to a lot of successful, deans always talk to successful alums, and I asked around, like, what advice would you give students? And from talking to all those people, I came up with three things that they said really made a difference. The first one, and they seem obvious, but sometimes people don't know this. Right. The first thing is work hard. You know, don't take it for granted. You're given a job, a job that maybe you like, work hard at it. Mm-hmm. The second one is be nice to people. Be nice to everyone. You know, from the receptionist all the way down up to the CEO. Right. Pay attention because people watch that behavior. At, you know, going back to this notion of self-monitoring. Uh-huh. Understand how you come off to all these other people and that matters. And the third piece of advice that people said over and over was don't just learn what you do. Learn what your people on both sides of you do also. Huh. So learn other skills and then when you do that you're in the right place at the right time for potential promotion because a lot of movement in firms are not so systematic it really is an accident or somebody got hurt and someone needs to step in and do something these things these opportunities come up and you know they say luck is you know hard work or however they say that you know something someone's lucky was working hard for that lucky opportunity hard work meets opportunity or something something like like that that. i know i'm angling that yeah yeah i'm angling it too but it's that's the idea interesting and our final question what is it that you know about the world of retail and marketing today that you wish you knew 20-plus years ago when you first started your career? You know, like I said, when I was writing this book, it was shocking to me that I have been teaching marketing for 100 million years, and we always teach these principles of customer value, differential advantage, and the third one is selectivity and concentration, which has to do with segmentation, and that I did not realize until I sat down and wrote this book and thought about what Amazon did that retail was not customer-focused. Hmm. That is like so amazing to me because that <laughs> retail is about selling to the consumer how could they not understand that the consumer input is important and it shouldn't just be a push strategy it's amazing to me well first how long did that strategy work before it suddenly stopped working it's yeah if the market gets competitive enough if you don't have enough competition and that's why whenever i give a talk on any of this stuff i ask the room is amazon a good guy or a bad guy and it's always 50 50 if you're a customer if you're a customer you say amazon's a good guy right if you're a competitor you your face gets red and you just hate Amazon because competing against Amazon is so difficult. But most people will agree what Amazon has done is raise the bar. For everybody, across the board. Across lots of different industries. Huh, quite fascinating. We have been speaking with Professor Barbara Kahn of the Wharton School of Business. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes and you can see any of the past 200-plus conversations we've had previously. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. 
I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps me put together these conversations each week. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Medina Parwana is my producer slash audio engineer par excellence. Taylor Riggs is our booker slash producer. Michael Batnick is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. <laughs>